1: Welcome to On Docs, a show about documentaries and the stories they tell. I'm Colin Ellis.
2: And I'm named Kiwanuka. Joining us today, we've got Zach Russell and Khalil Sebright. Hi. Hey.
3: Hi,
2: Nam. Hi, Colin. We are going to be talking about your documentary, Someone Lives Here. And it was huge huge uh, reception at Hot Docs. What was that like, Khalil?
3: Um, it was very strange. Yeah. <laughs> and just, I don't know, seeing my image, like, Massively on the screen, and then being around all these people reacting to things I did, I was like, ah, this is very uncomfortable. Yeah. And um, but I don't know. It was it was overwhelming at first, and I reacted to it in a way I didn't expect. And yeah, which is what what way? Just I was unusually emotional, and um, it's funny because I've seen it. I've seen it before. Zach showed it to me a version of it before, so it's like I knew what was coming, and then still watching it on the screen and hearing everyone reacting to the things that happened, I just felt really emotional. And then we had to go up and speak afterward. And that was a lot. And I was like struggling (laughs) to keep my voice steady. And like, I don't know, but it was good. Yeah, Yeah, it was good.
1: Congrats on the Hot Talks uh, top prize,
0: right? That
1: must've been exciting. How'd that
0: feel? Felt good, felt good. I'm yeah, I'd be lying if I said it didn't feel good. We we made the film with no financing and uh, we, So it was nice to be recognized and to get a little bit of money. And it was cool that it was the audience choice. It was surreal to get that money from Rogers um, and have people from the Rogers group, which John Tory uh, has been intimately involved with for many years, give us that money. But uh, yeah, it was a really good reception. I'm really glad that we premiered the film in Toronto because it's a
2: film for Toronto. We do have a little short clip of the documentary and we want to show it before we start our conversation. Here's a little clip of Someone Lives Here.
3: Okay, this next story actually comes from Toronto. A carpenter named Khalil Sievright is building insulated shelters for homeless people in the community. This is the kind of stuff I need to hear. A drill.
2: And a hammer. Let's meet the carpenter from Canada crafting mobile des.
1: One Toronto carpenter is receiving praise.
0: Those who have used them call it a saving grace. I'm
2: so impressed by what you're doing. It's actually incredible. You are such a hero. That's cool. Drew Barrymore was <laughs> yeah. talking about you, Khalil. Zach, Cole and I were also surprised that you were, it seemed like you were right there at the very beginning of all this. So how did you two connect?
0: Yeah, I, I wish I'd been there maybe two weeks earlier because I was there, I would say, right after the very beginning. Um, but I'd seen an article on the CBC about Khalil and and wrote wrote you a couple of emails and, and asked if you were interested in a documentary. And you were like, absolutely not. And you <laughs> firmly rejected me, but you then you asked me to do a how-to video to sh- show other people how to build the tiny shelters. And so that's... So we did that and
3: and I don't know. What well what happened? made
2: you say yes afterwards?
3: Um yeah, there is there is a few different people. Sorry, I'm just gonna move this back. Um yeah, there's a few different people that reached out that wanted to do a documentary and I just said no to every single person. And yeah, Zach was just very persistent and I'm like, all right, cool, like if you want to do something, can you do this thing for me? And then we made the how to video. It was long, it took a lot of effort on Zach's part, and he just put it together like very quickly, and I was like, Oh, that's great. Like this looks amazing. You know what? You can stay. <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah, and it and it's just been like, I don't know, Zach's just been someone that's like just growing on me every time still. every time we hang out. Still. It's like it's amazing. It's just like I don't know. Like a mold.
2: <laughs> but the good mold. Yeah. But it's it's
3: been I don't know. Like working with Zach has been I don't know. It just gets better and better. Can you, can you yeah. talk a bit about the, the, the shelters themselves,
1: like how you put them together? you you have a background in carpentry, yes? Yep.
3: Um, yeah, so they're basically built just like um, just like a standard house and the only extra addition to that is having an inch and a half or two inches of insulation around the entire exterior. So there's two by six studs and then plywood for the sheathing and then a layer of insulation on the outside of that. And um, yeah, it's built basically to the, it's like a house that's just miniaturized into something that's 4 feet by 4 feet by 8 feet. And the the idea behind that is to use your body temperature to heat up the space. And so to figure that out, I guess I used a furnace calculator for when you have like a space, you want to go online and figure out, all right, how many BTUs do I need to heat this space if outside is negative and, 20, and I want the inside to be 16 degrees. And then it will give you a calculation based on the wall assembly, the insulation, and Yeah, use that and I substituted a candle, which is equivalent to like the body heat that you produce and use that with the size to figure out how much insulation we needed and yeah.
2: You thought about this, Mm, you thought about this for a while. Um, Where did the idea come from?
3: Um, uh, I was staying in a community, like an intentional community in BC in uh, New Hazleton. It's like 15 hours north of Vancouver Mm -hmm. in the middle of nowhere. and. yeah, I was living there for almost three years. And I was staying in like a camper trailer, a cabin, and then a tent, and then all these different places. And I sort of figured it'd be really nice to have something that was just mine. And whenever I came here, that's where I can go. And with all these scrap materials from other jobs, I I just built this thing, not with as much insulation,
2: mm-hmm.
3: but um, yeah, the, the basic idea was originally built in that community.
2: So you're saying that you were unhoused at some point?
3: Um yeah, I guess in the community I always had a place mm-hmm. to go. It just changed. But um I was I was on house when I was staying in Vancouver for 5 months over a winter and um yeah, and I was staying in a tent by Burnaby Lake over mm-hmm. the over the winter and that's pretty insane. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's pretty terrible, yeah.
2: So you would you say that this is what's motiv- what motivated you to want to do this?
3: Um It's a lot of different things that came together and just coming back to Toronto and just seeing folks like staying in tents and just seeing many more people showing up in tents and like it the end of summer coming and thinking, Oh yeah, like everyone's gonna find a place inside or something and that just not happening triggered me to want to do something. And I I just had an idea of like how miserable that'd be. Like I was miserable in Vancouver, which is generally mild in comparison to Toronto, so it's like you're gonna have a really hard time staying in a tent through the winter here. And yeah, it just seemed like something I could do and I did it. But I think, yeah, a lot of people when they
0: see people living outside in parks, A, that just haven't had that experience of being unhoused and B, don't think or have the skill to intervene. So I feel like it's like a combination of you having the experience and the idea
3: and the actual technical skill. Yeah, it's like all these things just somehow came together for me to, to be this person that's like, all right, I can do that. I will do that.
1: Zach, where does your interest in this subject come from?
0: Hey, uh, I, so, I mean, how much time do we have? <laughs> I, I think, you know, to be really, to be really honest about this. And I think I'm only kind of understanding it more now that the documentary is out and I'm having to talk about it in public. But I think, I mean, I came from a kind of a family that was like lower middle class. And I spent a really long time trying to escape that and to, to be rich and to have money and to be an artist that like is not of the lower class and, and yet always felt really drawn to these stories and, and have had people in my family that suffer from similar problems, uh, whether it's with drugs or being unhoused or being in prison. And so, yeah, I think it's a kind of Freudian thing that I couldn't really escape. Uh, yeah, and then also my parents are social workers and worked in in, in housing. Uh, so yeah, so I guess all that. And then there was just something about Khalil in the story that I just had like a vision, you know, like I read the story and I was like, okay, I can see a tiny shelter on a hill with snow and I can hear a voice coming from inside. And it just, I don't usually have like those kinds of, you know, film mm-hmm. visions. So it seemed like a thing to pursue.
2: Well, you, you mentioned a voice. Um, the documentary itself starts with just uh, a black screen and we're hearing a voice and the voice says, you say, I'm going to record. And the person says, voice only, not picture. And then you say, because. And the person says, because, maybe because I have nothing left, the last would be my image and I want to keep it. And within, I think that was like the first minute, and I was holding my breath. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, right? Um, and this person is Taka. Can you tell us about Taka?
0: Yeah, so I met Taka uh, at Alexandra Park, at Dundas and Bathurst, and I was volunteering with the the Encampment Support Network and with Ginger Dean, who you see in the film later, one of the outreach uh, volunteers. And uh, yeah, I just became, from the minute I met Taka, I was like, oh, this this person needs to be in this film.
2: Um, Why did you want to start it that way, without any Im- images? It's a documentary, but we're not seeing yeah. <laughs> anything, but we're hearing.
0: Right. I mean, to be to be perfectly honest, I didn't always start the film that way. I always knew that Taka's voice would start the film and her story would start the film, and I showed it to a couple people, and, and they were like, the film is amazing, but we never see Taka. Why don't we see Taka? And I realized, oh, okay, we you have to explain mm-hmm. right off the bat. And so I looked for an explanation from Taka, and she just immediately had it. And, and yeah, I'm really happy that we, that I didn't push to show her image. And I think it's like one of the only things that I could really give her in the process. Like what, you know, like you someone's living outside, you can't immediately give them housing. You can give them a bit of food. You can give them company. You can listen, but like, what could I meaningfully give in the context of being a filmmaker with a subject? And and that felt like a, a good gift, um, to be so central to the film, but to never have to show your face. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. She actually, you, you built a house for her, right? A shelter for her? Yeah, for
1: Taka. Yeah. And how'd she like it? Yeah, I guess she appreciated it. Mm-hmm. She stayed
0: of. in it for five months. Yeah. I think I think it's hard to talk about the desperation of people living outside because... I guess it feels a little bit like talking to me. It feels a little bit like talking about like the desperation of people who are like at war. Mm. And like, so on the one hand, you can talk about the desperation, but on the other hand, you can talk about the will to survive and how Mm -hmm. they're under siege by our government and by society at large. And they're, they're, every day they survive, they're winning this fight. And so I feel like that's where my, brain goes when i think about people outside it's like oh you, and you you win the fight every day and then you come to a screening at hot ducks and watch this film and you're even. like you know like just the <laughs> the like amazing power and strength i feel like people like john tory and a lot of the city councilors you see wouldn't last a day outside mm. and so to me that's like that's desperate, like desperately holding on to money, desperately holding on to these policies that are destroying people and killing them. And then on the other side, you have these people who are surviving. Um, yeah.
2: One of the solutions that we keep hearing about is that people don't need to uh, be in the camps. They shouldn't be in the tiny shelters because we have shelters that they can go to. Um, but Taka was saying, you know. <laughs> being in one of those shelters is akin to being in prison. I think she actually described it as being in the sewer. Can you help us understand what the system is like? Because it seems as if a lot of us don't understand what the shelter system is like. We hear one thing, there's lots of space. And then the documentary, you show someone trying to help someone find space and they're like, well, sorry, we're only open Monday to Friday. (laughs) And If if you call us after hours, you have to wait until Monday. And as we, this past winter, surviving two days on the street is, I don't know how many of us could do that. So can you help us understand how the shelter system works and why people are reluctant to go into the shelters?
3: Um, yeah. I mean, generally, you can look at the stats for the vacancy of Toronto shelters, like, year-round, and it's, like, consistently near at 100% or 99% or 98%. So it's, like, the idea that there is space is untrue. And that's something that the city likes to communicate, that there is space, but when you go and call, like in the film, that you keep calling. And most of these people don't even have cell phones to continuously call, so it's, like, a very... I don't know, unreasonable thing to expect to not have people slipping through the cracks of. And then there's just not enough space generally. Like you can keep calling and keep calling and you'll be turned away. And I don't know, it's just like an ongoing problem. That's an ongoing problem. And then also just with staying in shelters from my understanding, it's, um I don't know, you're sharing a a large space with many people and some respite sites like the one at um, Lampard Stadium, it's just cots, you're just staying in a cot and you're in a massive space with all these other people and it's like, I don't know, it's just difficult for diseases not to spread, it's difficult to get a good night's sleep and it's difficult to feel like you have your own space, to feel like you have some self-respect while you're staying in a space like this and there's limitations on how many things you can bring inside and you can't have pets. And yeah, if you show up late for a shelter, you get kicked out. If you have an argument with a a temporary staff and they don't like you, they can find a way to get you out and that happens really commonly. Mm. And um, yeah, and you have to be out of there for a portion of the day. And then you have to come back right on time for this time where you lose your spot. So it's like, there's many things in place that make it very hard to have a consistent like stay in in that system, and it doesn't it doesn't make sense, and it doesn't work for a lot of people. So, yeah, staying outside is easier in in that sense and safer and safer. Really? Because sorry, there's, yeah. there's just
0: there's this one story from someone, and it didn't make it into the film, and I think about it a lot because, and I don't know if it'll resonate, but it's like he was staying at the Better Living Center. And he went to check in, and he was on time. He was before curfew, but they they locked all the doors, and they wouldn't let him in, and they wouldn't let him in. And then finally, like an hour later, they let him in, and they said, "Oh, that's because there was someone really dangerous outside, and we didn't want to let that dangerous person in, so we were going to leave you out there." And I'm like. And so this really upset him and it made him feel like really unsafe on multiple levels. Like, why are you keeping me outside when you know that there's someone dangerous out there? And why why are you not communicating that to me? And I just think about it in the context of like my apartment. Like imagine you wanna to go to your apartment and the door is locked and you're not allowed in because there's someone right there hmm. who's maybe gonna hurt you. And like for that to be your day to day, like how could you feel safe in that shelter system?
1: Was there ever, um support for the idea of Tiny Shelters from the City? Did they, I think there's a scene in the film that you can tell us what happened, but.
3: Yeah, and I don't know, yeah, just a conversation with uh, staff from Streets to Homes. That's just like, yeah, we can possibly work together and this is a great idea, so impressed by your innovative thinking. And yeah, and I guess I had the impression that they spoke on behalf of the entire city of Toronto and they didn't. And, (laughs) And then I heard from, you know, the core of, I guess, the senior staff And their message is like, we do not support this and we will destroy them and get them out of our sight and you will be charged for the removal. And it's like, oh, that's actually what they believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: You know, at one point um, you're in the car and you say that your main concern is that um, police, like cops showing up. And you say that every single time that's your main concern. I mean, I don't have to remind you that what happens, what's been happening uh, when police you know, with a black man. And I was watching that. And I, as you said that, I kept thinking, why did you keep doing it? (laughs) Weren't you scared? Like, weren't you worried about what would happen to you?
3: And I mean, I don't know. There's a sense, there's a sense in my mind of like, cool, if you're on the side of gravity, everyone will wind up where you are. And it's like, cool, if you just do things that are true, that make perfect sense, eventually people will come around to see that that, is is a fact and if you don't see that yet then that's more I don't know it's inconvenient and it's it's a problem but it's like that shouldn't determine what you do yeah hmm. and um yeah and it just made sense to continue doing that and made perfect sense to continue doing that and so that's what we did
2: but when the when you found out that the city was suing you did you kind of did you lose your breath a little bit or
3: yeah i was i was pretty in over my head, I've never experienced something like that. And I was just like, cool, I don't know what to do. And um, yeah, and that was really difficult. And What were the city's like concerns? Like what,
1: what, what did they say to you to make like that? you know, what were there, I guess, like problems with the shelters themselves?
3: Um, they really didn't like their existence optically. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I guess one concern was just, one major concern that they that they made a point of repeating is like, oh, it's like, it's not safe. This is not a safe living condition for anyone. And it's like, and the clearest immediate uh, argument against them is just like, cool, like is staying in a tent safer? Mm. And it's obviously not. And if that's the case, then this is like a form of harm reduction that you disagree with. And it never seemed to be about people's safety, I guess. Like when when you hear a story, like in the documentary of someone freezing to death in a washroom, and it's like, all right, city staff don't need to have a, have a public meeting to discuss that. That's not a thing that we need to share with the public that happened, because that's not going to further our agenda of removing the optical, uh, I don't know, like existence of encampments and homelessness. It's like, but when, I guess, a shelter burned, then this is a great moment for Jim Jessup to get on camera and tell folks why. And um, yeah, do you think they were blaming you? Um, I guess they didn't. Yeah, I guess they didn't. But um,
0: but they used it. Like they they used it. They they'd already drafted a um, uh, application to sue Khalil or to restrain Khalil. Yeah, and, and then. They drafted that several days later. Someone died in a tiny shelter in a, in a shelter fire. We don't actually know what the structure was. There were many people building things, but someone died in an encampment. And then they chose the next day to release this to the public. So, like they they were already working on legal action, and then they saw the death as an and opportunity. It,
2: it was also the wording. I think he used the word "tiny shelter,"
0: tiny shelter fire, right?
2: Yeah. Um, and there's been uh, you mentioned someone freezing um, in a washroom, and I mm-hmm. think that was beside a shelter. Mm-hmm. And I believe the city has now said that they're not going to um, report anymore when someone dies outside on the street. We see you, somewhat in vain, trying to uh, get someone to help certify your structure as fire safe. Did you end up getting someone to actually give you a pass?
3: Um, they didn't want to do it officially, (laughs) just because they didn't want to lose their job. Mm. And, um, yeah, I did reach out to someone that did work with the fire department specifically in doing safety inspections, and they came to the shop and did an inspection. And we have a video of that, and we actually blacked out their face, (laughs) so that no one would see who they were, specifically. And, um, yeah, they, they gave their opinion about it and thought it was, like, fire safe. And, yeah. I think too, like one
0: of the things that so frustrated a lot of people who were working with people living in encampments and people who lived in encampments is like the this fear of liability, right? Like you hear it on a phone call, like, oh, the city doesn't want to be liable if somebody is living in an encampment and dies, but there's no accountability for when people lose their feet to frostbite or when people die in shelter hotels or when people overdose because of the policies of the shelter hotels or when people are trapped on a floor during a fire uh, in a shelter hotel. So there's like... There's a, it's a very narrow and politically motivated view, this idea of liability. Um, and it's basically if people are helping themselves, then they're liable. And if the city's doing anything, then the city's not liable. And it just doesn't make any sense. I
1: got the sense watching the film that this sheer bureaucracy that people are up against in terms of trying to find housing. Like, I, I don't know if there's any clear heroes or villains in this story. I mean, it's just, it's a very complicated system. And it's like, yes, you can point to the mayor. You can point to city councilors who are against the encampments, but then, you know, it's like people who are trying to find housing for unhoused people who are on the phone. Like, I think there's a scene where you're, I think someone's on the phone trying to get housing for someone and the other person on the other line's like, well, you got to call this person. And it's just like, there's just, just real intricate web. Um, I don't know. Have you come ac- come around to any sort of um, solutions to the housing crisis? I know you're a filmmaker and you're you know, you're building I, I I know I don't know if you have any policy uh, suggestions here but I just wonder if you if you have thought about this
3: yeah and I guess that's been um something I'm finding super interesting and it's just like cool like this is a journey I need to be on to understand how to make a change in the place that I'm that I'm living that's like for the benefit of the people that live here and it's like I don't know and you can look at you can look at policies that were made by the federal government from like 1994 to like not build affordable housing literally up until 2016 hmm. and that's that's 20 years of not doing that and then suddenly realizing oh this is a problem like we have a housing crisis we need to dump all this money right away into building houses and it's not going to I don't know it just doesn't make sense like why in 1994 was that decided and why did that maintain why did that continue to be the policy and it's like I did not participate in that decision. I I imagine the majority of Canadians probably didn't participate in that. And if they saw that that was happening, it wouldn't have happened. So it's like there's this process of making policies that get passed that no one has any awareness of that destroy our ability to survive. And that's something I'm realizing that is a huge problem. And I guess you have to be aware of who's making decisions and what those decisions are and having your say to make sure that the best interests of the people that live here are being taken care of. And a part of that as well, like a one a massive problem I think in Ontario specifically is just rent control. And that's provincially controlled. So that's not something that the city of Toronto has control over. Mm-hmm. And since Doug Ford in on November 15, 2018, his his government has decided that it makes sense that since that day that they were Voted into office that there should be no rent control on anything built that day and any day after, and and it's this really strange idea and it's also something that's already been done and didn't work to produce more affordable housing. So what that encourages and the mentality I guess Steve Clark is the the head of what the hell is it? Ministry of Housing I yeah. believe yeah yeah and I just read an excerpt it's like yeah so like we're gonna. Get rid of rent control. It's going to encourage all these developers to come and like build all these housing, and then that will somehow lower the cost of rent because there's so much housing. The price of rent will be reduced. This didn't happen when it was done before, and um, both NDP and Liberal, I guess, uh, uh, front runners thought that this is a terrible idea.
2: But we see that, um, I think we just had new numbers come out in April of 2023 showing that rent has gone up 20% from last year. Um, I, I think we don't really hear from a lot of people who are being impacted by this directly. And you both had an opportunity to speak to people who are unhoused. What do they need?
0: Well, uh, I mean, we you, we you should have them on. <laughs> <laughs> um, you should definitely have them on because yeah. uh, they'll speak about it a lot more eloquently and intelligently than I will. But I think you know, I think there's two. I, I've noticed two problems. One is like the the bigotry and the stigmatization of people who live outside, um, which I think is like akin to like racism. Like I, I think it's like it's rampant and it's horrific, and there are structural things that uphold it. Um, and yeah, like the, the, the 10,000, 13,000 people that live here that are unhoused are just seen as less deserving by our government, by society at, at large. So I think dealing with that um, and actually viewing them as people would be a very good start. But then also like just housing, just build housing. Like yeah. for God's sake, just, just, <laughs> just give people housing and then they won't have this issue. And it's actually that simple. But when you have housing on the one hand as a human right, which we, in this country on paper, but then on the other hand, it's a financial market and it's a way to make money and it's a way for financialized landlords and private people to make a lot of wealth and to play this game kind of akin to like the stock market, right, where you can dump your money in and you can see it grow. So those things are in conflict. And and I think think that, I'm not sure what every unhoused person who came to see the film would think, but I think that they would say that there's something deeply wrong in our society, that we can't provide
3: housing, Um, deeply wrong.
2: Well, do you think that uh, housing is becoming a wedge issue?
3: Uh, it's a huge issue, and I think there's a lot that can be done. And the the exciting thing, I think, when like looking at their specific platforms is like there are little snippets of things that make a lot of sense to do. It's like, all right, let's increase the vacancy tax. That's part of Olivia Sch- Child's platform. Um, Josh Matlow's platform is really interested in, in recreating a model similar to Vienna, which is like, I guess they have like 100 quote unquote homeless people that have access to shelter that aren't sleeping rough outside. It's like, and half the population of Toronto. And it's like, they just have a model where the the city itself builds lots of affordable housing. So much affordable housing that's rent controlled that market prices cannot go too far or like you'll just move into the affordable housing across the street. So there's no incentive to to keep increasing on on the units that don't have rent control there's no incentive to keep increasing pricing because you're not gonna get anyone to buy it mm. and um, yeah I think a lot of his suggestions make a lot of sense um, Mark Sanders is interesting. (laughs) But like, I don't know. And like, I'm biased because I want someone to like, be really interested in building affordable housing and not a former police chief. So it's like, it's hard for me to like, look at his platform and be like, ah, that makes sense. It's like, I want to destroy all bike lanes and reduce congestion. It's like, why do you hate bike riders? I don't understand. (laughs) And it's like, but like, to be fair, it's like, I am just learning about this process and to me like a great question to ask any mayoral candidate is what do you think would be the criteria a voter needs to make a good decision for mayor and it's like if they can answer that honestly without just you know portraying themselves as that answer just like honestly objectively what would be the criteria like you would need to vote to make a good decision it's like I would love to hear those answers.
2: We only have a few minutes left, um, but uh, I wanted to know from both of you how do you feel about the story being out there? Because we heard a little bit of what was happening and then it kind of went radio silence with what was going on with you and the tiny shelters. Um, so, how do you feel now the whole story is out there?
3: Um, I don't know. I It feels very vindicating. <laughs> oh and it's like, I don't know. And like, there's a Superior Court uh, ruling that, um, that says it's you know, it's unlawful, it's illegal to remove people from encampments if there isn't a place, a safe place for people to go. And it's like that completely vindicates my entire effort of building those shelters. and that was something that the lawyers wanted me to fight for then, and I just didn't have the capacity to do at that time. So it's very vindicating now to see that. Mm-hmm. And um I don't know, and it's like sort of understanding that there's an opportunity to, I don't know, share to share something that's really going to have a significant impact and that feels very exciting and powerful yeah and i just feel
0: depressed <laughs> <laughs> i do i really do you Terrible. know yeah i don't it doesn't feel good it doesn't feel good because things have only gotten worse and you know there's so many people Fighting very, very hard to save lives outside who aren't in the film and have been doing it longer than we have and mm-hmm. will be doing it longer than we, we, we will. And, and so I feel like, on the one hand, there's this massive effort of people that are fighting so hard and the conditions are only worse. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a very strange feeling to screen your film and have this great public reception from all kinds of people, unhoused, housed, recently housed, and then you go outside and there are people sleeping in front of the cinema. Yeah. Like, how do you feel like it's a triumph when we're still, you know, when we still have so many people in-house? So yeah, I I, it's, it's, I just find it quite depressing. But then I listen to Khalil talk and I feel less depressed. <laughs> or it's just like,
3: there's something to do. Yeah. And it's like, I don't know, we started on that path and it's just like, what to do just keeps broadening. And it seems like there's more and more that we can do. And there's so many organizations that we can connect with. And it's like, I don't know, like the last provincial election, there was like 43% turnout of ev- of everyone that could vote. It's like, that's insanely low. That's <laughs> like most of the people that live here did not decide on who should be making decisions for you. It's yeah, like,
2: I think only 43% of people um, who were eligible to vote voted? yeah, yeah. and it's like, wow, it might be lower if I
3: think it's uh, lower.
0: It's, I think well, forty is rum, I think what it was, which but- is the opposite because what I think you are relentless. <laughs> and, right? like you were relentless in this effort and you'll be relentless again. And I think it's that like we actually need the opposite of a low voter turnout. We need like relentlessness. We need yeah. to elect a mayor, and then we need to relentlessly make sure like hold their feet to the fire mm-hmm. and make sure that they actually do half the things that they're saying and yeah. then make them double it and then make them double that because the, the, only then, like none of their housing platforms are sufficient. So mm. I think it's like we need a relentless public and an angry public. And I do think the public is angry. And so let's, we should do that.
2: I know you said you were depressed, but I think um, it's important to capture history and to speak truth to power. Thank you both for being on the
3: show. Cool.
1: Thank you. Thanks to our producer and editor, Matthew O'Mara and our podcast manager, Sharayer Tajvidi.
2: Also, thanks to our amazing studio crew who made our video podcast possible, and to our support coordinators, Carla Lucchera and Jonathan Halliwell.
1: We'll catch you at the next screening.